All right, so um, just way of quick summary. Over the last four weeks, we have looked at... We, at the very beginning of the class, I said that you can understand Scripture in terms of six large acts. If we're going to say that the Bible is a story, then there is at least six acts to that story. And Act 1 was creation and introduction of the main character. So that was Genesis 1 and 2. So we said, all right, God comes onto the scene. He builds this place for people to live. He introduces into that the... Um, inhabitants of that home which are humans image bears and so we get this like introduction to the story here's where it's going to take place here's where the plot's being said um act two is the fall which is genesis three and then the spiral of sin that comes after that so that's genesis three all the way to genesis 11 and then with act three we start this story right here which is where god calls um, a dude named abram into relationship with himself gives him a covenant and that covenant is that hey dude through you I'm going to bless the entire world. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a name. I'm going to give you a nation. And then through those things, the entire world will be blessed. And we saw that blessed is a reference back to this moment of restoration. So I'm going to bless the entire world. And then Act 3 continues, and we looked at that all last week, saying um, from there we get the people of Israel. This is them multiplying. Um, We find them in bondage in Egypt. God rescues them. God pulls them into the wilderness and he speaks them from Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. And in this moment, he clarifies this promise and says, I said, how are you going to be a blessing to the entire world? How are you going to change the world around you? And he says, well, first, I'm going to make you a holy nation, a people of priests. And people of priests do what? Well, they mediate God's presence or they mediate God's goodness to the rest of the world. And Israel will be like that as a whole nation. And there's three ways they're going to do that specifically. There was the Torah, which was the law, um, the way they're going to live distinctly. Um, So this says, Torah says, okay, you're going to trust God. You're not going to worship false gods. You're going to not have a standing army because you're going to rely on God as opposed to uh, military might. You're going to have debt forgiveness policy so there's not poverty and exploitation in your midst because your nation will run differently. You will look differently. And through those things, the nations will know who you are. Um, my drawing that I just erased was the tabernacle, uh, which is the place that God's presence would dwell. Because we saw in Act 2 that one of the issues, one of the things that needs to be resolved in the story is that God's presence needs to be reunited with the people of, um, of earth. Those things have been separated because of human sin. And the tabernacle becomes the place of overlap where God's presence is dwelling, where there's a moment or a piece of heaven dwelling on earth. Um, so they get the Torah, they get the tabernacle. And then the third promise that's given to Genesis to Abram in Genesis 12 is they get the land, um, which will be in the midst of the nations so that people can see them, know them, uh, and through them know God. But at the end of this story, the people of Israel do not have a land yet. Um, and as Deuteronomy comes to an end, which is the final book of the Torah, we have kind of like some actually sad moments where um, God tells Moses, he's like, hey... Just so you know, your people will never live this out. They'll never fully obey me. They'll never fully trust me. They'll never fully love me. And they will never follow the, the precepts or teachings of Torah. And so you see that as their, as, as their life. They never practice the year of Jubilee, which is the debt forgiveness policy. They never give the year, the land, time to rest. They develop a, a sophisticated military. Uh, throughout their story, they're worshiping idols. And he's like, they won't ever come to trust me until... They learn to circumcise their own hearts, change their hearts. And that's where Deuteronomy ends. That's Moses' like final word to the people, and then he dies because that's such sad news. Um, that's not exactly why he dies. He's old. Um, 
And after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, the whole old guard of Israel dies, in a sense. So Moses dies, the people who have been rescued out of Egypt, pretty much all of them are dead. And a new leadership comes into play uh, under a dude named Joshua. And thus begins the conquest of Canaan, the conquest of the promised land that we're going to still, even though they're not going to be faithful, even though they've already not been faithful, Exodus 32 is like their own personal false story, where they decide to worship a false god as opposed to God. God's still going to be faithful to his covenant. He's still going to give them the land. And so as soon as Deuteronomy ends, the Torah ends, we get the conquest. And I think as we talk about the conquest of the promised land, um, like when we were talking about Torah, there is things we have to wrestle with, um, right? Because like that's an easy one of those places where people criticize scripture or they criticize the things that they're reading and be like, hey, that seems really barbaric or that seems villainous or that seems evil or that seems wrong, that God would, would, would engage in holy war. Um, is holy war acceptable? Is that what's happening in the conquest, right? Um, is it um, genocide? Is it um, ethnocentered genocide? And so there's all the kind of questions that the, the, the conquest brings up to the surface. And I think as we dive in, we just have to look at, there's, there's conceptions that we have of conquest. And three of them, I think, we have that really influence the way we see it, but I think are misconceptions. Um, and here's the first one. Um, we imagine Israel as muscle-bound conquerors. So we think about conquest, and we think about holy war, and I think the first thing that comes to mind is crusaders. Or the first thing that comes to mind is like Spanish conquistadors who are like invading South America and wiping out indigenous peoples. And we're like, oh yeah, they're, they're muscle-bound conquerors. They are stronger than the people they are attacking. They have more sophisticated military tech than them. They are uh, better armed than them. They're, they're, they're the ones that are coming in with like shining armor and they're, they're rampaging a village of idyllic utopian-like um, natives who are just like living there and eating bananas. Because um, that's what you do in utopia. Um, <laughs> And so that's the thing that we have. This is the way we perceive it. It's like they are muscle-bound heroes. They're huge. They have armies and they have um, tech. I think the other misconception that we have is that Israel is going to conquer the promised land in the name of God. Because when we look at holy war throughout history, that's exactly what's happened. The crusaders are invading Persia and the rest of the Middle East, and they're going to retake it in the name of God. And so, like, oh, this is this is a war for God. We're going to defeat you for God. You are the infidels. We're doing this in the glory of God. Uh, and the third thing that we think about is that then the conquering nation um, declares themselves victors because of their superiority, because they see themselves as heroes or better. Um, so that's why they conquered in the first place. So it'd be like Israel is conquering Canaan because they think they are better than the Canaanites. Um, or the Crusaders are conquering the Middle East because they believe they are better than the Middle Eastern uh, people. Or, or the Spanish conquistadors are conquering um, the Aztecs because they believe that they're better, that their culture is better, that their way of life is better. And that at the end of the day, that they are better people than them. Um, those three conceptions, I think, just kind of twist how we actually read the narrative. Because when we jump into scripture, what we see is, yes, Israel is going to invade the promised land, but they're not doing it from a position of strength. Israel is not the strong, muscle-bound heroes of the sword. They're not sophisticated in their military tech. They're not coming in with armor. Israel has just gotten done being slaves for 400 years. And then they're wandering in the wilderness 
for 40. And they're going up against nations that have at least had it that long to establish themselves. Not wandering, not as slaves, but as free peoples. With cities and towns and time to build military systems and times to build defensive structures and times to do what you do. And so this is not a strong people group invading a weak people group. This is not the empire versus the rebels. In fact, this is not even the rebels versus the empire, if we want to think about it in reverse. If we're actually thinking honestly about who Israel is and what they're up against in this, this is way more like the Ewoks versus the empire. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like, this is, this is depressing. This is the Ewoks getting crushed. Yeah, yeah. So you, it's, 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 or it's, it's a First Nations people in the United States versus the United States military. Like Native Americans. <laughs> Let's keep it safe. Let's keep it where it stays away. You know, like it is, it is the, uh, or it's the Aztecs versus the conquistadors. It's a very different scenario. They don't have sophisticated military. They don't have generals. They don't have trained soldiers. They have farmers and brick masons who are attacking people with masonry tools. Um, it's not an effective strategy when you're going against chariots. And actually, that's, you'll see this language being used throughout scripture is that Israel gets really nervous about going to do battle because. They'll be like, those homies have chariots, which is the first century equivalent of tanks. And they're like, and we have <coughs> blow darts. And that's, a, that's how, they probably actually don't have blow darts. That's not true. <laughs> we have rocks and they have tanks. So like, this, is not a, this is not a fair battle. It's not a fair fight, right? This is not the strong versus the weak. This is the unimaginably weak versus the strong. Um, one scholar, I just think he says it really well. He says this. He says, there is something antithetical to mainstream holy war. He said, you expect the grade school bully to take on the weakling. You don't expect him to take on the high school wrestling team. You expect a pirate to capture a vessel lost at sea. You don't expect him to declare open war on the Spanish Armada. You expect the third world dictator to abuse scattered dissenters. You don't expect him to hop in his personal jet and take on the U.S. Air Force. And that is what we see Israel doing. They are not the strong. They are the weak taking on um, forces that they shouldn't be able to. Which leads to the second point. Israel is not entering into this conflict in the name of God. In fact, it is again the reverse. They believe God is going to fight for them. That God is literally going to wage this conflict for them, not the other way around. That The only way for them to enter in, the only way for them to be victorious is if God fights the conflict for them. And we've seen that throughout our time in Torah, that Israel is called to be different, to be distinctive. They're not allowed to have a standing army, and so instead they are to trust God and allow him to do the fighting. And it makes sense when you look at Israel's military strategies. The very first city that they're going to try to conquer is Jericho. And what do they do? They march around it and play music. That is not a sophisticated military strategy for conquering a foreign nation. But like, can you imagine if someone tried to take over the United States by just playing like Led Zeppelin and marching around our border with like Canada and Mexico? Like, it's not going to be an effective thing. Like, no one will care, right? But that's exactly how Israel engages conflict. Or think about when we jump into the judges. Um, the judge Gideon goes to war against oppressive regimes, and he does it by smashing jars and playing music. Or think about even David, who actually engages in military conflict. It's David, a young boy with a slingshot, versus a trained 
uh, military fighter. Like, that's the entire story of Israel's strategy and conflict, that they're going to go into this war in weird ways, but the point is that they're going to trust God. In fact, Psalm 20, verse 7 gives you one of their war songs. It says, some trust in chariots, logically, some in horses, also logically, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Uh, they're not going to trust the military attack. They're going to trust that God will fight for them. And if he won't, they're going to lose. And then finally, Israel has never seen or understood, even in their own history books, as a nation of heroes who God blesses because they are better. Um, have you ever heard the phrase, um, victors write the history books? That never applied to Israel for some reason. Because <laughs> instead, this is what their history book says. Deuteronomy 9.4, God says to his people, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, the people in Cana, it is because of our righteousness that the Lord has brought me to possess the land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of this nation that the Lord is driving them out before you. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is not giving you this land because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. So God's like, hey, just so you know, like, it's not because you're better than them. It's not because you're more superior than them. It's not because you have some, like, <coughs> tap on being awesome. No, no, you are terrible just like them. And I'm doing this because of my own purposes and because actually of God's goodness instead. So I do think when we look at those perceptions, we, we have a, a change of kind of like the way we're going to read some of these things. One, it's not about the strong conquering the weak. It's about the weak standing up against the strong in the face of all imposing odds. And it is about God arising on behalf of the weak against the tyranny of the strong. Now, that's fine, and it's really cool. However, there is some moments where we're looking at the conquest, and you get some kind of like weird marching orders that almost feel like they contradict those statements. And one of those comes, I think, actually in the very first conflict with Jericho. And I'm just going to read you the passage so you can kind of understand the tension. And it says, On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. So they're playing the music, marching around the city. And in the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in the house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. And so that causes a problem. We're like, I understand that God just said, like, you're the weak going against the strong, but that still feels weird in some senses. You're like, that seems almost too drastic and i think a lot of that comes down to what we think about jericho when we're thinking about jericho what do we think that place is so when i first read this text i always thought of it as being like a city like salt lake city right like the people of israel are going to fight they've come into contact with a walled city like salt lake they're marching around seven times and when the walls come down then they devote everything in the city to destruction right and then you're like whoa that makes me feel uncomfortable because God's supposed to be good, and that's a city. But I don't think Jericho is a city. It's a military outpost. And this is the reason I believe that. Uh, one, because of the archaeological evidence that we have from Jericho, which we have quite a bit of. It's one of the oldest tells in the world that we're actually digging in today. And what's important about archaeological evidence is that if you're looking for signs of a city, you look for homes or home goods. Signs of life, signs that families live there, signs that people live there. And people have a lot of waste. Even in the ancient world, people have waste. They have pottery waste, they have food waste, they have 
um, home good waste, you know, just things like that. There's toys for kids. Jericho has no signs of any of those things. No signs of homes, no signs of family dwellings, no signs of um, citizens living there at all. There's no sign of a civilian population in Jericho. The second thing that makes it significant is that Jericho is really small. It's only six acres um, fully, which just isn't large enough to house a civilian population. Third, Jericho is the very first thing Israel comes into contact with, which makes an interesting point about where it's located. You don't put a city... That's amazing. um, You don't put a city right in the pathway of an oncoming army. Like, if this is the way that people are going to get to your land, if this is the way that people are going to get to your home, you don't put a helpless city there. What do you put there? You put a military outpost. You put a base. Something to guard the borders. Yeah, exactly. We do the exact same thing in the United States. We've always done that. Why do we have things like Fort Knox? Or why do we have the border with Mexico? Those are all things that we believe will protect us from some kind of oncoming oncoming threat. That's always how things have worked. You don't put a city... In harm's way, you put a military outpost. So Jericho is located where a military outpost would go. And the final thing that's helpful is that Israel is not commanded to put what we know to be cities to the torch. So when we know that a city is being referenced and we know that the evidence supports that it is like an actual livable city, the Bible never commands it to be put to the torch. Um, like Jerusalem, for example, is captured and transformed into the capital and the people are spared. And God tells them to be like, hey, don't attack the people. Spare the people. Transform the city. And so I think what's important to note there is that when God commands the people to take drastic measures against a place, in almost every single example that I could find throughout Scripture and that other scholars can find throughout Scripture, it is always a similar situation as Jericho. Uh, that there, the, the, there's like four examples of a, of a city being burned, and all of them fit the exact same criteria as Jericho does, that most likely they are military posts. And then when we know their cities, the instructions are entirely different. And I think what's super important about that is that as we walk through the conquest, what we'll see is that God is not in Cana to wage war on people. He is there to wage war on empires and armies. So he's not there to wage a war on Canaan's people or the people that Jericho is defending. His commands would be different. Right? This, is not, this is God going against Napoleon and his armies, not Paris and her people. That's an important distinction. He's going to go against systems and institutions. He wants to tear down oppressive governments and empires. Which is why when you look at Jericho, the only civilian mention, the only non-combatant mentions, Rahab and her family, what happens to them? Oh, they're spared. They're brought into the people of Israel. And you see the same thing happening when the people of um, Israel leaving Egypt. That um, God wages war against the false gods of Egypt, and then everyone in Egypt is invited to join Israel. Um, so it's empires, systems, the people are um, invited to join. So why would Rahab and her family have been living there if it wasn't like normally? Well, think about the opportunity for a prostitute when you have a, a base full of soldiers. So I think um, I think that's the reason. Um, she sees an yeah, there's an economic incentive for her to be there, um, and but normally families don't. You don't like you're you live in a family in the ancient world. They don't do what we do, where you just like get up and leave. You know, people stay together, and so um, her family is with her. 
and then the entire family is spared. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a good, that's a great question, though. Um, and then, so you see that, so you see where there are civilian populations um, in different moments. Those people are always spared, um, like with Egypt, like with Rahab. Um, you even see Joshua is making peace treaties with as many people as he possibly can throughout the entire story, um, all over. Another big theme that you'll see happening throughout the conquest is the language that's being used, and that's super important um, to what to understanding what's going on. We sometimes think of what's going on. <laughs> you gotta lock that door. Uh, we often think about um, like the conquest as being like, oh, God is annihilating people because we just see we see this kind of language and we're like, oh, God is like ruining people. He's like killing everybody. But the language is actually going to be used most often throughout the conquest is going to be this. Um, this is an example for Deuteronomy. It says, and the Lord will drive out those nations before you. And that phrase, drive out, will be used 50 times um, throughout the conquest. And it's the idea of pushing people out or um, driving out the nations, the empires, not destroying. Now, the word annihilate is used, so that's important. Um, in fact, God actually often uses it to talk about Israel. That um, he's like, hey, if you don't keep my covenant, and if you become like the nations around it, if you become oppressive, if you wield power poorly, if you become a system and an institution that looks just like every other system and institution, then I will annihilate you. And then he does. And what does that look like? Exile. He doesn't destroy the people. He doesn't set all of them to the flame. No, no. He pushes them out of the land. Because if God is dealing with empires and institutions and systems, then annihilation doesn't look like everybody being dead. It looks like them being removed from the land. Like, if you wanted to annihilate America, all you would have to do is exile America's people. Right? The nation doesn't exist if the land doesn't exist. Right? This is what our institutions are built on. If all of a sudden we all flee to Canada because of a Trump presidency, America doesn't exist. <laughs> right? Like, uh, I'm not saying you would or you should. I'm just saying, if you do that, America doesn't exist. It's rooted in the land. And so God threatens to annihilate Israel, but that has nothing to do with their people. It has to do with dealing with the nation and the land. And so he brings them into conquest. Um, and that's what annihilation, I think, actually goes throughout Scripture to mean. Um, so, okay, so as we're looking at the conquest, here's what we're seeing is that conquest is about overthrowing the oppressive regimes of Cana. It's about the weak sending up to the strong, um, and it is about empires, nations, institutions, and systems not about people, because every moment that, you, that people get a chance to like have a conversation, they're always being invited to join uh, Israel. So that's what's happening in Joshua. Any questions before we look at another? We just keep going on the story. We just hit a lot, so I don't want to like breeze over it too fast. Okay, great. Glad you guys are paying attention. <laughs> um, all right, so that I'm just gonna draw. I'm just gonna continue our little narrative graph here. So that keeps us going. Um, conquest. What's a good sign for a con? Ooh. Jars and trumpets. Yeah, that's probably better. That's a sword. Um, so this is the book of Joshua, which carries us through. That's a sword for sure. <laughs> that made it better. There you go. There you go. Oh, there you go. Oh, okay. That's better. <laughs> Don't you judge. I had to come with this design on the spot. I didn't practice. 
All this other stuff was way practiced. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it actually kind of looks like it. Kind of looks like it. Um, and as you're reading the story, here's what's great about the Joshua, the book of Joshua, is as you're reading the story, it's like the time when things are going well for Israel. Um, they're like synced in with what God is doing. They're synced in with what Joshua is doing. They're, uh, I mean, there's a moment of panic and fear, and there's all sorts of kind of like human emotions that are being received. But for the most part, like, you don't go very long in the story with something like terrible happening because the people reject God. Uh, here it's Exodus 32. Here it's Genesis 3. So you get two chapters of cool. Um, here you only get until 32 before on the honeymoon Israel abandons God. Right? It's always going poorly. And Joshua, you get like a whole book of like, hey, we're trusting, we're pursuing, we're engaging in the conquest. And it's not until Joshua dies that things start getting really questionable. Um, and Joshua does die at the end, and the conquest isn't quite yet finished. And um, the old guard begins to die as well, and you get like a new group of people. And they start to get lazy and lethargic. And instead of living into the distinctiveness that God has called them to be in Torah, instead of continuing to take over all the land, um, the people begin to just get lazy. They begin to integrate with the people around them. They begin to reject God uh, and worship him. And so you get the entire book of Judges. Which is like, they're in the promised land, but they haven't taken the whole thing, and they've kind of decided they don't care anymore, and it's just one judge after another trying to lead them back to following God and fulfilling the commission that he gave them. Some of the judges are really solid, um, some of them are really terrible, and in fact, as you get to the end of the book, the judges just keep getting worse and worse, and what you're seeing again is this intense spiral, maybe worse than anything we've seen before, um, as the people of God try to live without God. And that's actually, there's this like constant refrain that's running throughout the book of Judges. Um, the people of Israel did what was right in their own eyes, and there was no king in Israel. And you just keep seeing this phrase. And what's interesting about that statement is we didn't look at this here, but God is, in Torah, God is actually intended to be the king of Israel. And so just kind of like this, either... They need a king like the rest of the world, or they need to go back to uh, seeing God as their king. But either way, they're doing what is right in their own eyes. And as you see it, you just get these terrible stories of what that begins to look like in Israel. Um, some of the worst moments that like, kind of are most gut-wrenching in all of Scripture are found in the book of Judges. Um, as we come to the end of the story of Judges, um, the people do instead start to clamor for a king. And they're like, hey, we want somebody to save us. We want somebody to rescue us. We want someone to fix the problem that's going on around us. And they choose a dude named Saul, um, who is in every way and shape the king you would choose if you're the people of Israel. It says he's tall. It says he's good looking. Um, it says he's like powerful of stature. He's everything that you would ever imagine being in a king. And his story will take a lot of First and Second Samuel, which is what comes after Judges. Um, and yet, he rules exactly like the kings he has chosen to emulate. Um, so he wields power poorly. He doesn't pursue God. Um, he oppresses the people of Israel and um, finally dies in a battle that loses his life and his son's life in a large... Um, portion of the Israelite army. 
to the Philistines. From the wake of Saul comes um, a truly solid biblical hero. Um, We haven't had one for a while, and we're in need of one. And from the wake of Saul, um, we get David. Uh, And David is a super solid king, so solid, in fact, that in his regency, the prophet Nathan comes to him and gives him one of the coolest prophecies in all of Scripture um, that we'll see points us towards Jesus, but also gives us a lot of information about what's going on. This comes in 2 Samuel um, chapter 7, starting in verse 8. It's a few verses. I'm just going to read it to you. Um, it says, this is Nathan. He says, Now therefore you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, because David was a shepherd, that you should be my prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. So um, he's done what was supposed to happen in the conquest. He's, God has fought for David. And then we're going also back to this promise, that I will make your name great, which we learn in Genesis chapter 3, so that people will know. So just getting like this promise that's happening to David is the same. It's like built on these other promises. I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, land, so they may dwell in their own place and not be disturbed. Another piece of the promise. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appoint judges of my people Israel, and I will give you rest from your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled, and you will lie down with your fathers. And I will rise up your offspring after you, and you shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay, so in that, we've talked about covenants throughout Scripture. We said that um, there's a covenant here with Noah. Uh, Genesis 9. God gives a covenant to Noah that says, like, hey, dude, I won't flood the earth again, and I'm committed to it, and I will restore it, and I will renew it. God gives a covenant to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. It's like, hey, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. I'm going to make you a great nation with a great name give you a land, and I'll bless the whole world through you. God builds on that covenant in Exodus chapter 19. Is like, hey, how am I going to do that? By making you a nation, a nation of priests. And then in um, 2 Samuel, oh, this is going to be solid. Yeah. That's a crown. In 2 Samuel, we get another covenant, what we call the covenant with David. And it emphasizes all of these other things that, hey, I will establish the land with you. I will make your name great. And where you have been living with the tent, the tabernacle, you will build me a temple. Um, So all three of those things are being fulfilled, except we're getting another piece to that covenant as well. One that we haven't seen before, which is that someone from the line of David will reign in Uh, will reign forever. There will be an everlasting dynasty. He will have some kind of dynasty that does not end, which is a really bold thing to say and leads us to a lot of questions when we get to the end of the story and there's no one from David's house reigning. Um, Yes, he gives him all these promises, super huge. If you're reading the story, you're just reading it continually through, this should be like a huge sigh of relief moment because you've just witnessed like the people of Israel be idiots just over and over and over again and then finally you get to this moment and you're like, there's, a, there's like somebody on the scene who might do something. And he does. And when David reigns, I mean, there's failure, there's mistakes for sure. But when David reigns, the people of Israel are uh, pursuing God. They're 
Um, David gets the furthest in expanding the promised land to like the actual borders that God set for them. Um, he begins to uh, accrue all of the, the things necessary for building the temple. Like it's the best time in Israel's history. But David dies because he's a human and his son comes in the reign, the dude named Solomon. And for a time, Solomon's reign is really solid too. And Solomon builds for the people of God a temple um, and it's glorious and God's presence dwells there. But then Solomon goes the way of Saul. He goes the way of lots of kings um, and he wields power poorly. And specifically what he does is he burdens the people of Israel with labor and taxes. Um, So much so that when he dies, his son Rehoboam comes into the throne and the counselors are like, yo, you should lighten the load and these people will trust you forever. And Rehoboam is like, you know, instead of that, I'm going to increase the load and a civil war erupts um, in Israel. Um, Broken crown. <laughs> um, civil war erupts under Rehoboam, under a dude named Jeroboam. He comes up and he takes the people of, he takes like half the people of Israel and the nation divides and you get Judah, which is the kingdom in the south and Israel, which is the kingdom in the north. And they stay divided. They never unite again. Um, Israel's kingdom is a terrible place. Um, they never really follow after God. They have prophets. And we'll look at a lot of the prophets next week who like, are living throughout this time frame. They have prophets who are like calling them to repentance and calling them to um, trust in Yahweh and, ta- and calling them to like re- remove from their sin. But instead of doing any of those things, the northern kingdom of Israel decides, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to build our own temple. We're going to write our own Torah uh, and basically create our own religion. And they do. And actually, it's really interesting. Um, some of the remnants of that religion still exist. And you can go um, to a county in Samaria and see like that like weird hybrid Judaism like getting played out. Um, they like, still do sacrifices and stuff. It's super fascinating. Um, um, yeah. It's a small group, you know, like Jehovah's Witness size group, but um, yeah, super weird. So they do that, and you get kings like Ahab and Jezebel. You get these like really amazing stories about like their wickedness, um, but they continue to reject God. And in 722, um, the nation of Assyria comes against Israel, the northern kingdom, and wipes them out forever. Um, and then you never get a northern kingdom of Israel really ever again. Um, Assyria takes them over, assimilates them into themselves, ruins the, the territory of Israel, and then takes the people back to Assyria with them, um, and kind of they just become part of Assyria. And then, like the Samaritans, when we come later to the story of Jesus, are this group of people that are Jewish Assyrian, um, and the Judah, the people of Judah, which is where you get the phrase Jewish. Like where do we, that never exists until this moment because the southern kingdom of Israel is called Judah and that's where you get the phrase Jew. They're not big fans of the Samaritans because they believe that they are um, traitors to the faith because they've created their own Torah, their own religion, which is also why the woman at the well is like, our people worshipped here and they had their own temple because they did have their own temple. That's like what they worshipped around. Um, and that's where you get that like the intense, when you come to the New Testament and you see this like huge tension between Jews and Samaritans, it's all because of this moment here, because there's a civil war in their past that ruined their nation. Um, yeah, but so they get conquered by Assyria, and then as things go, Assyria gets conquered by a nation called Babylon, and Babylon then comes to war against Judah. And Judah holds out for way longer. Um, they have some good kings in their midst, and 
super cool story. You should read it in scripture. Um, when Assyria comes against these guys in 722, the dude who's leading it, the Assyrian king, is a guy named Sinatrab, and he comes against Judah's king, which is a guy named Hezekiah. And it's just like this really cool moment of reformation in Israel. Hezekiah trusts in God. He, like, they find the Torah, which has been, like, lost in the temple, and they're reading it to the people, and there's, like, weeping and repenting in the streets, and, like, reinstitute all of these um, practices from Exodus 19 that have gone lost. Um, Hezekiah builds a wall. He defends the people of, he, like, works hard to, like, turn the people of Israel back towards God, and then God shows up and defends them from the Assyrians. And they last until 585 B.C., when Babylon, who conquered Assyria, then conquers Judah. Um, and though Judah had moments of like cool health, they end up worse than anybody else around them. Uh, the prophet Ezekiel will actually come to them while in exile, and he'll say, like, do you know why you're here? And he said, because you were worse than Sodom or worse than Gomorrah. And he says, why? Like, like, and, not, and we always think about that being like sexual sin for some reason with Sodom and Gomorrah. But the thing that Ezekiel criticizes them of is you oppress the poor, you were unjust to the vulnerable. Um, you took advantage of the people around you. You were just like the nations around you, except worse. So he takes the example of the worst nations that we know, and he says you were worse than any of them because you neglected God and uh, became an oppressive regime. The same one that I was trying to remove in Joshua, you became. And I told you if you became that, you would also be driven out of the land. Um, and they are. 580 B.C., conquered by Babylon, and um, I was just going to read, this is the passage from 2 Kings that we get describing that moment. Um, I'm just going to read it to you. It's, it's super intense. It says, In the ninth year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar, the king we know, king of Babylon with his great army, came against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. They built siege works all around it, so the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls by the king's garden. But the army of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered with him. Then they captured the king and brought him to the king of Babylon, and they passed sentence on him. And they slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out his eyes. And Zedekiah was bound bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. And he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned and all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted the king Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude, uh, Nebuzardan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. So Babylon is... What Israel was not. They are the muscle-bound conquerors. They have the most sophisticated military technology. Most historians say at this time, next to Assyria, who they took over, there's probably never been a more sophisticated military um, in the Middle East. They destroy Judah. They tear down the temple. They destroy the city walls. They demolish the king's palaces. And then in three different waves, uh, which is all kind of summarized right here, they take exiles. um, They take people of Israel into exile in uh, Babylon, which is where you get like Daniel, the book of Daniel. He's one of the first waves of exiles because the first people to go are um, the educated, the noble. And then you get like the second class of people, and then you get the finally the third class of people. They just take everybody back into Babylon and make them servants. Um, and then we find that Israel is in the same boat we found them in here, um, slaves to a foreign land. 
in a foreign nation, in a foreign kingdom. Uh, as the story goes, uh, Babylon is conquered by Persia, because that's how things go in the, uh, the world of nations and conquering. Um, Persia is where we get um, uh, Xerxes, um, which is the king that many of us know. He's actually a, a, a character in scripture known by a different name, Hazarus, but he's still there. Um, that's where we get the book of Exeter. She's like living in that time. So this is the exile literature. We get some of the prophets that's living in that time too. And under Persia, Persia has a much better policy towards Judah. They begin to release the people back to their homeland. Uh, and some of the people come and under Nehemiah, they rebuild the walls of the city. Under Ezra, they rebuild the temple. Um, and you're starting to see this kind of like, this. we're coming back a little bit. But at the same time, um, those books actually carry this like intense sorrow um, as they say, like, Ezra rebuilds a temple, and then people are looking at it. They were like, hey, we, we know this isn't as glorious as Solomon's in the presence of Yahweh never dwells in it. Or Nehemiah builds the walls, and like, yeah, but it's never going to be what it was. And no king of Israel, no king of David comes onto the throne anytime soon. Um, and Hebrew scripture ends with that. They've... People have returned from exile, but then you just get this, they've like rebuilt, but then you just get this huge question mark about like, what happens next? We have all these promises here and here and here, promises about what we're supposed to be, promises about what's supposed to happen in the world, promises about how like this moment, this is all going to be resolved, like how heaven and earth are going to be reunited, how... Um, sin and evil are going to be dealt with. All of those things that Israel thought they were going to be the way that happened. And they come here and they're like, we're further from that than ever before. Um, and it starts this really interesting thing for them. Like they, while they're in exile, they get a, they get a couple different prophets. Like Isaiah's writing them a little bit. Um, Daniel's writing. Ezekiel's writing. Uh, Jeremiah's writing a little bit. Jeremiah actually has to see the destruction of Jerusalem. And he, we think he wrote the book Lamentations, which is just the mourning as he like watches Jerusalem burn. Just a sad image. Um, and they're like speaking to the people of Israel and they come back and they actually come back really different. Um, like you don't see them. Like this is where the Pharisees from the New Testament come into existence. People who are so serious about the law because they understand that they're in exile because of all of this. And like, we're not going to do that again. Like, we're going to be so stringent to your word that we'll be blessed again and we'll be in right relationship with you again. You always give the Pharisees a sort of hard time, but like their response to this, to losing your land, to losing your homeland because you've believed that you've failed. Um, and that's what God says is about that time, is that it is a time of transformation for the people. It is a time of um, heart change and humility. Um, yeah, that's what you get. Uh, there's the story. Um, 